Welcome to the SPE Podcast, powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers. You're listening to SPE Live, Gaia Talk, COP28, Oil and Gas Insights from the Blue Zone. The audio from this episode was previously recorded on December 19th, 2023. And now your moderator, Trey Schaefer. Welcome to this SPE Live, Gaia Talk. Our conversation today is going to cover COP28, Oil and Gas Insights from the Blue Zone. My name is Trey Schaefer. I am the SPE Sustainable Development Technical Section Chair and Gaia Chair and I'm also a senior partner with DRM, and I will be your moderator today. Today's SPE Live will last 30 minutes. We encourage you to ask questions during the program. You'll have to type those into the chat. And it's my pleasure now to introduce our guests. First, I'd like to introduce Brian Sullivan. Brian joined IPECA as the executive director in 2011, following a 23-year career in BP. He graduated in metallurgy and material science from Imperial College in London, and he was recruited into BP's Refining and Marketing International. He was recruiting into BP's Refining and Marketing International Graduate Program in 1986. During his time with BP, Brian had a varied career of financial leadership roles across the downstream value chain, including including crude and products trading, marine fuels, lubricants, and alternative energy. During his tenure at IPCA, he has overseen the growth of the association and leads their contribution to the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, the Paris Agreement, and the Energy Transition. Brian is also a fellow of the Energy Institute. Next, I'd like to introduce Arthur Lee. Arthur is Chevron's fellow and senior strategy advisor with the Energy Transitions team within Chevron's Corporate Strategy and Sustainability Group. Arthur participated and continues to participate in the Intergovernmental Panel on climate change IPCC process since the third assessment report from 2001. The IPCC recognized him and other researchers with a certificate for contributions to the award of the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. Further, he continues to participate in the IPCC in its sixth serving, in its sixth assessment, serving currently as a review editor. Arthur was appointed by the U.S. Secretary of Commerce to serve as a member of the National Climate Assessment Development and Advisory Committee from 2011 to 2014, for which he received a signed recognition recognition letter from President Barack Obama in 2014. And finally, I'd like to introduce David Hone, who works for Shell International. He is the Chief Climate Change Advisor in the Shell Scenarios team. He joins Shell in 1980 after graduating as a chemical engineer from the University of Adelaide in Australia. He has worked in refinery technology, oil trading, and shipping for, for Shell. David is also a board member of C2ES in Washington and GCCSI in Melbourne, and is a former board member of the International Emissions Trading Association, or IETA, which he chaired from 2011 to 2013. Lastly, David is also the author of the 2017 book on climate change, Putting the Genie Back, Solving the Climate and Energy Dilemma. Brian, Arthur, and David, welcome to SP Live. I think it's important to remember that the starting point for this COP was what was called the global stock take. And that is the, this is the first global stock take, meaning that it's the first point in the Paris Agreement 
where nations uh, and the UNFCCC actually look at how we're going in terms of mitigation, adaptation, finance, and all of the various aspects of the Paris Agreement. And this, of course, um, not surprisingly, the finding was that we're, we're not on track to, to the goals of the Paris Agreement, and certainly not on track to 1.5. And so it set us up for what was called the, the, the UAE consensus, which was the document coming out. And it set up a, a, a process that, that led to some, some pretty bold ambition on, on the deployment of renewables, the deployment of um, nuclear and electric vehicles and so on. But it also, of course, led to quite an acrimonious discussion about the future role of fossil fuels in the energy mix. And I'm sure many people followed this where we started off with the desire for phasing out fossil fuels. But of course, we ended up with transition away from fossil fuels. Um, and there was a lot of applause and, and backslapping about this, but it was a difficult discussion. But nevertheless, one that the UAE managed to get over the line and, and create this consensus. So let me let, let's let's continue on and give the audience a little bit of a deeper dive because as well as these very high-profile negotiations that went on and which were widely reported in the media, there was, of course, you know, very important work being done around other aspects of the, the Paris Agreement. And whilst the UAE consensus was, was you know, a difficult challenge and one that the government did a great job in getting over the line, that wasn't the, the, that wasn't the case with the negotiations around what is called Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. And this is the mechanism within the Paris Agreement that, um, that, that allows cross-border trade of carbon units so that, so that countries can cooperate in, in reaching their, their, their national goals. And, and whilst a great deal of this has been agreed, the, the detail is really challenging the negotiators to settle on. Uh, and at the COP, we unfortunately saw an end to uh, the current negotiations where they were not able to agree on the detailed implementation of the mechanism to, um, to allow projects to, to, to take place to generate carbon credits. This was what's known as Article 6.4 and is widely seen as the successor for the clean development mechanism of the Kyoto Protocol. I think uh, I think it's important to to note that uh, what David had said about the trouble with six four six point four definitely uh, will be a year delay. Uh, but I ju I just want to emphasize uh, I think David said it already. But six point two paragraph two uh, was already agreed to in uh, in Glasgow at COP twenty six. So it's important to remind us remind ourselves of that and that the detailed rules at the time are still operating, okay? So they, 6 2 is still there, and it is important to know that because countries are still signing up with each other these bilateral agreements to be able to trade these internationally transferred mitigation outcomes or ITMOs. So that is still happening, and countries are still doing that. Uh, what was at stake here at, uh, at COP28 were uh, really issues that are perhaps a bit more minor but also there was a linkage to 6.4 that could not be helped. And, and so it caused 6.2 to, uh, to fail. It, it has to 
but again, uh, the, the the rules that are more granular now, much more uh, uh, about consistency between countries, do not have to be adopted for countries to be able to do uh, their own agreements and sign up and make rules themselves of what they could uh, trade. It's the, 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 the six two negotiation that happened and that failed this time really were much more granular and more about the future consistency. So uh, I'll just leave it there because those, even though that is not the headline, the, the global stock take all the headlines, there are other issues as well in terms of global uh, goal on adaptation Okay, because that's important to understand too. Adaptation is also uh, an, an important part. It's, uh, I think, Article 7 of the uh, Paris Agreement. And that is also very important to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to countries in this long-term approach uh, to climate change. Uh, you have the 1.5 degrees and you have 2 degrees in the mitigation goal, but there's never been a, uh, any kind of goal really for adaptation. And now they're, they're negotiating that as well, setting up the framework for that, which was agreed, but the details of that has not been agreed. And that will continue. Thank you. Thank you, Arthur. Maybe Brian, you know, as an observer and a participant in a number of these events, were there any highlights or differences from COP28 compared to the prior COPs that you've attended and that were noticeable that you could sort of share with everyone? Well, I guess, um the two main the two main differences were very much uh, linked to uh, the location. So um, this was by far the biggest uh, COP um, that there has been. Um, I think the um, the statistics said there were something approaching seventy thousand people uh, who registered in the blue zone, which is um, uh, where the um, the parties to the agreement, the countries plus the observer states, observer organisations um, can attend. So, um, in terms of scale, number of people involved, uh, and everything like that, it was a it, that was a very significant, um, uh, very significant feature. Um, I guess Dubai had Expo City available, and they decided to fill it up, uh, and they certainly did that, both in terms of the blue zone, as I mentioned, but also the green zone, which was like a sort of enormous trade fair, showing um, uh, with many companies uh, showing off, uh, you know, technologies and uh, what they're aiming to do uh, in the future. Um, the as part of that, a big element is that. Um, uh, a very, very large contingent of people from business, not just the oil and gas business, but business turned up. And um, I think that's a great thing because um, uh, nearly everything we're talking about is driven by or affected by how people consume things uh, and how things are made. Um, and of course, uh, nearly all this stuff is produced by business. So um, it was great to see business turn up. It means that business is now paying attention um, and um, it's not just um, uh, focused on, on on sort of individual single sectors. The other thing, of course, is it was hosted by uh, the, the president of the COP was also is also the CEO of Adnoc, the state oil company. He's also the CEO of the largest the renewables company as well, Mazda, um, uh, and um, that created an environment where. Um, uh, there was a greater degree of inclusion of representatives from the, the oil and gas sector. 
Um, I can I can remember um, uh, Paris. Um, initially, there was uh, you know there was quite a bit of interest in bringing certain oil companies in, and uh, in the end, the politicians um, uh, told them not to show up at the last minute, uh, and um, you know it was all getting rather difficult. Whereas this time, uh, much more inclusive. Um, and um, uh, as we'll find out later, I think it's led to some um, uh, announcements and initiatives which will make a significant difference um, uh, as a result of that. Thank you, Brian. Uh, David, would you or Arthur have any additional comments on the differences between prior COPs and this one? I know you both are also longtime observers of this particular event and gathering. No, I think Brian's done a good job, so let's. Uh, I'm happy to move on. That sounds good. So, if we could, I know you've talked a little bit about this. Yeah, Arthur, uh, I, I, could say, I could say a couple oh. of words. Uh, okay. Uh, if you can hear me, uh, I, I could say a couple of words about Trey. Can you hear me? Yeah, you sound great. Hello, Trey? Yeah, you're good. Yeah, okay, okay, good. Uh, 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 David, David remembers this. In fact, he's the one who reminded me. Uh, we met at COP six or uh, six bis it was actually i think it was six bis in bonn right uh, david yep. so uh, so i think it's important <laughs> it's important to remember that uh, at cop uh, at cop five well i started cop five at cop five the uh, uh, in 1999 there were less than ten thousand people and uh, and everyone all the negotiations could fit into the hotel maritime in bonn and then i think there were about three uh, german ministry buildings at the time, they were still there in in Bonn, three German ministry buildings that were uh, allowed to uh, host uh, uh, various uh, smaller negotiations. The Hotel Maritime is a very, it's a very impressive hotel. It has these two huge plenary of rooms that are almost styled like a, like like a UN kind of a, a UN kind of a setting, theater amphitheater kind of setting, with uh, many uh, allowing for countries to negotiate. So it was a very impressive hotel, but that's it. That was uh, less than 10,000. And if you uh, think about green zone, well, there was no green zone back then. The, uh, the side events were uh, maybe in a conference room, you host one or two meetings. And then what, uh, what the, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, pavilions or, or uh, business hubs or any kind of pavilions that you can think of now in the green zone or blue zone, they were literally just a few folding tables uh, and a couple of chairs where people sit there with literature on the table. Of course, that was back in the day when we still have to have a lot of hard copies, uh, not too many computers yet, with uh, with uh, showing a lot of slideshows, but more tables and a few people in the atrium of that hotel. And that was it. That was the green zone combined with uh, pavilions and everything. So so the, 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 uh, the, the enormous scope has changed. And the last number I saw was actually... Uh, even uh, close to uh, ninety six thousand, uh, as as I saw in the registration. So so it's a huge difference, and the uh, and the complexity of the issues are just that much more complex. So thank you, thank you, Arthur. I think you know, Brian, you alluded to this a few minutes ago that there were some side agreements and other announcements that were made alongside of COP. Could you elaborate a little bit on that comment? Um, yes. Yeah, what, what, yeah, so, what were the standouts? I know there's probably many, but maybe pick a few that were the most relevant in your view. Okay, so there's um, uh, some of them were sort of parallel. Some of them ended up being sort of meshed in with the uh, UAE consensus. Um, uh, but the, the big one really is um, was the announcement on December the second about the global decarbonisation uh, accelerator. 
uh, and um, uh, that is a um, uh, that was a very big um, it's a it's a big umbrella initiative um, that was pulled together um, by the COP28 team under under Dr. Sultan's presidency. Um, which was uh, a mixture of some initiatives which had been brewing for a few months beforehand, or maybe a bit longer, um, and also new things. Um, and um, under this decarbonisation accelerator, there were three main elements. Um, so um, uh, one is about um, quick, um, so almost like quick wins in a way. Uh, so it included things like looking at um, methane, um, and uh, underneath that is... Um, uh, the, the new program uh, that is being pulled together by the World Bank um, to as a successor to the um, uh, Global Gas Flare Reduction Partnership. It's now um, looking at um, uh, methane reductions. Uh, it's a new fund uh, that's being established to um, support projects to uh, eliminate methane emissions. Um, and um, then the second stream is about decarbonizing today's energy system. And that's where the probably the two big ones for our industry come in. So the first one is the oil and gas decarbonisation charter, uh, and um, the aim of this particular charter is to was initially or is predominantly to enrol more national oil companies into setting um, higher levels of climate ambition than perhaps they've done already. Um, as long with along with other companies as well, so um, uh, this would include um, uh, included setting scope one and two net zero ambitions by 2050, uh, aiming for zero methane by 2030, and eliminating routine flaring uh, as uh, sort of three of the um, ambitions that are under this. And the aim of this particular um, initiative is to. Um, as well as setting the ambition, it's going to provide a bit of um, uh, a bit of a framework to enable knowledge transfer, uh, good practice transfer to help, particularly in the national oil companies who are sort of not um, normally involved in the in these um, in these programs to uh, learn the processes, technologies, and practices that are that are needed in order to reach those targets. Um, so that's. Um, uh, that's particularly uh, big um, uh, initiative that's um, that, that was uh, announced underneath the uh, the GDA, um, and a number, as I say, I think some forty percent of the world's oil and gas um, oil production, I think, has been um, has signed up to this. Uh, quite a number of national oil companies who haven't uh, participated particularly in uh, other initiatives have joined that. So um, that's a a good uh, example of um, uh, an, an opportunity for the industry to scale up action. The um, other um, uh, the other stream is the industrial industrial transition accelerator, and this is looking more on the demand side, emissions associated with the demand side, uh, and is looking at hard to abate industrial sectors, so steel, cement, aluminium, shipping, aviation power and oil and gas and um, uh, the aim of this particular accelerator is to scale up sector um, uh, delivery of decarbonisation um, activities and um, uh, this is um, uh, and, the, and the aim is to uh, find, help 
bring the technology, the engineering, the commercial and the financial um, uh, institutions together uh, in order to um, create uh, pathways for set industrial sectors to decarbonize. Um, and so those are the sort of the three main things. So there's the oil and gas decarbonization charter, the industrial transition accelerator, and then the World Bank methane thing are the things I wanted to bring out in particular. Thank you, Brian. Uh, we're recognizing that we have about five minutes left. I thought I might um, ask for you all to share your perspectives on the, on the next steps for the industry in response to COP28. You've touched a little bit on it, but are there, are there any standout next steps that you think are coming? Seems like some of them are wrapped up into these initiatives, but is there anything else specifically driven from COP28 that you can speak to? Yes. Um, I'm happy to. So, David, so I, think, I, I think what you've seen at COP28 is the, particularly, you know, with, the, with this language that started off as phasing out fossil fuels, but ended up as transition away from fossil fuels, is, uh, you know, a, a very major challenge to the role of oil and gas in the energy system. And, and I think also a, a challenge to, to actually the rest of society who, who perhaps don't completely see the role of oil and gas in the energy system. And we're sort of like passing ships in the night almost, that, that you know, oil and gas and coal make up 80% of the energy mix. And yet, a lot of people talk about this as if it's something we could dispose of, you know, in the very short term. So I think the industry is being challenged. Uh, I mean, the whole climate change issue is a challenge to the industry, but it's being challenged at its very foundations of existence rather than its ability to manage emissions, um, which, which didn't get as, enough discussion. That I think that's that's perhaps one of the big challenges going forward. That's not to say that we can live in a world where we burn the same amount of oil, gas, and coal and manage all the emissions. That's that's not practical. But I think we do live in a world where we're going to use oil, gas, and coal to some extent for all of this century on a declining pathway, and so we're going to have to manage emissions on a significant scale. And the room that we're being given as an industry to allow us to do that is diminishing, partly because we haven't scaled up fast enough um, in the time that we've been talking about technologies such as carbon capture and storage. Yeah. So, um, thank you, David. I think, yeah. I think Arthur, you were going to jump in. Yeah, I, I do. And I want to build uh, exactly on uh, what David left off. I think the it's very important for us as the sec at this sector to really uh, take the signal that's been given to us very clear now, uh, very clear to us from the consensus from the parties themselves that we need to focus a lot more on scaling up uh, uh, carbon capture and storage and low carbon uh, hydrogen production. Those the two explicitly stated uh, um, uh, phrases in the uh, in like paragraph 28 i think or paragraph 27 in in the uh, global stock take so those are very clear statements now and the timing is also very urgent uh now whether the timing and all that uh, could be delivered that's up to uh, up to a lot of different people as well not just us uh, in terms of policy it will also be up to governments themselves 
whether uh, each government uh, has the ability to to uh, to enact those policies and be able to have the people as well to uh, to deploy the technologies. All of this comes back to uh, my mind of uh, of, uh, of the three things I've learned over the years. Uh, is anything at COP really we need uh, to to have to have this kind of transformation? We really have to have not only the technology, we have to have climate finance, and we have to have the people. People meaning capacity building, people that can deploy the technologies, develop the technologies, and deploy them. So, so really, it's technology, uh, finance, or money, and and people. And those three things have to go together in order to even scale up anything. Uh, and and I'm not just talking about our energy sector as well. Uh, at this COP, you know, I paid a little bit of attention to to other sectors, and uh, and I could see the failure of negotiations in the ag sector. There were agricultural uh, food systems kind of decisions that also failed to achieve agreement at this COP, and it has to be made at the next COP. Uh, that too now fall into a work program that has to be uh, facilitated and be done in the next couple of years to reach agreement. So it's not just energy. We're talking about food and food security as well. All of that comes together uh, in, in in major challenges and in terms of money at COP29 in Baku. Money will be a big, big thing, a big headlines next year. Here. So. Thank, thank you, Arthur. Um, I'd like to ask the panelists if you have some summarizing comments. Um, perhaps... Uh, you can uh, each share a minute or so of your final comments, uh, starting with Brian. Okay, so yeah, I, I think um, I just want to build on really what David and Arthur have been saying. I think uh, particularly what it means for the industry and people who work in the industry. Uh, I think that um, uh, we've got um, a lot of work to do to broaden and scale up um, uh, efforts to um, uh, reduce and minimize emissions. Uh, not just within our with, within uh, the individual our own companies, but to help other companies in the wider industry uh, come along as well. Um, and uh, the real proof point, you know, the, so you know, the industry, oil and gas industry had its best shot uh, a COP in terms of um, uh, trying to position itself as part of the solution uh, in this COP. And we've got to sort of prove prove we've got to prove that um, we're worth it. And one of the biggest proof points will be on methane and um, eliminating methane. It's something we, it's something that um, can be done urgently and have a very big impact. And um, uh, I, I really hope that um, we can uh, we can nail that and scale that up across the across the wider industry. The other thing I think is quite important is I'm getting rather concerned that there is um, uh, uh, a lot of rhetoric about CCS, which is negative, coming from the top of the UN. Mm-hmm. Um, and also IEA now, um, where they seem to have, um, they seem to be leaving the science behind. So you hear the IPCC talking about CCS, um, and uh, I think a challenge for the industry is going to be um, getting the uh, the technical and fact based messaging around CCS um, uh, landed with, um, with with the state, key stakeholders around the world because. Uh, I, I'm, I'm getting a bit concerned that it, there are people who are trying to discredit it and claim it's unproven technology and all this sort of stuff. And um, uh, I think that's going to be a hindrance to making progress um, uh, in any form, and particularly with hard to abate sectors. Thank you, Brian. Uh, David, do you have any final comments? 
Yeah, just building on what Brian says, I think he's right. We're, we're losing our license to operate. And uh, e even though we're still supplying this huge percentage of the energy system, so there's a, there's a complete contradiction going on. And the, the CCS is problematic. Um, and I think we, we've had 20 years to try and land the, the argument. So really, in the next few years, the only way to land this is actually to build these projects. And that's going to take a lot of resource from the industry. And uh, But if the industry doesn't step up and do it, creating its own business models to do it, I, I think that the, the license to operate starts to, starts to really be challenged. Thank you, David. And finally, with Arthur. Yes, uh, first, before I forget, uh, let me uh, thank Brian and the whole uh, IPICA, IPICA platform. Uh, it's been a platform for me for uh, many years now, leading the IPICA uh, COP, uh, COP task force. So uh, thank you, Brian, uh, for, uh, for, this, for that privilege. Uh, as I said, uh, I've been uh, doing this since uh, COP5. I've been a member observer uh, for many years. Um, uh, as AITA, as well as uh, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. Uh, so, 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 so to me, over this many years, uh, what I've seen again is those three uh, pillars I mentioned, uh, the three-legged stool. you got to have the people who can deploy the technology to really scale things up. You have the technology itself, and then you have to have the, uh, uh, have, have the, uh, the money to do this. Now, of course, I, what I forgot to say, and, and I should have said, uh, perhaps is behind all of this and underneath all of that has to be policy. At the uh, Towards the end of my career now here at Chevron, uh, I'm, I'm back on the policy team. I started out a lot in policy, and now I'm going full circle back to policy. And at the end of the day, it's also government policies. So uh, not all the blame, if you will, can be... Uh, can be on, it would be on us. It's really government policies too that have to facilitate all this investment and all that uh, give us some some clear signal that that we can go big, that we can go big on CCS. Uh, because if we uh, don't get that signal, uh, we cannot make those investments. We answer to shareholders, uh, as well as you know, we also have to comply with with laws and regulations, obviously. But we have to answer the shareholders, and the shareholders uh, don't don't see investment opportunities. They they will not invest in uh, in our companies. So so it's very important. Policy has to be done right, and then we have to have the climate finance, the people, and of course with that technology that that's necessary to scale up. So thank you for this opportunity, uh, and this will be my last cop. So uh, thanks very much for all, all the years of this. Thanks. Thank you. But uh, thank. Brian, David, and Arthur for your time today. Thank you for your insights. We appreciate it. Uh, thank you to the audience for the questions that you provided. I think we touched on some of those through our responses. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the SPE Live podcast. For more content, visit the SPE Energy Stream, the industry's digital pulse at streaming.spe.org. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and review. Join us next time on the SPE Live podcast.